Well, let's go ahead and turn in our Bibles, please, to 1 John chapter 2. Today we're starting a new series, um, it's a new four-part series called Discern, and it's a series that I really felt the Lord put on my heart, actually over a year ago, and I've just been thinking about it for a year, I talked to the pastoral team about it about a year ago, and they were enthusiastic in making sure it gets scheduled for February of this year, and it's a series that I think is important, because discernment is such an important issue as biblically defined. See, all the way through the Bible, discernment is a theme. And so we're taught to discern the difference between right and wrong, the difference between good and evil, the difference between the way of Jesus and the way of the world. And discernment not only runs through as a theme, it's a theme that Jesus picks up on many times. And I think, for example, one of the key times is in Luke chapter 6, verse 46 through 49. See, in that chapter, Jesus is talking to his disciples and he's talking to the crowd And he says to them, listen, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and yet do not do what I tell you? He's saying, if I'm really the master and you call me Lord, Lord, or you call me Master, Master, that's great. But what's the point in that if you simply don't do what I tell you to do? You don't respond. See, he's questioning in that moment their discernment. What are you doing? You're hearing, but you're not doing anything with it. You're not discerning. And then he exhorts them and helps them see, listen, everyone who hears my words and does them, he is like a man who builds his house upon a rock. Everybody who hears my words and actually applies them, he's like a man that builds his house on a rock. And even when the storms come and the streams break the house, it doesn't matter because the house stands strong. It has foundations. Whatever the world throws at it, it stands stable and mature and durable. But the one who hears my words and does not do them, he's like a man who builds his house upon the sand. And when the streams come and they break against it, immediately it falls and is left in ruin. See, Jesus wants to question their discernment and his exhortation is clear. You need to listen to me if I'm really your master and you need to do what I tell you because that's how it's going to go well for you. That's how you'll be the man that builds his house upon a rock. And if you don't, then everything you have will ultimately be left in ruins. Discernment, as biblically defined, is a vital thing. And so for the next four weeks, we're going to be looking at discernment, four facets of discernment, which I think the Lord has put on my heart. And today, then, we're going to look at, number one, discern your world. I believe the Lord wants us to discern the world and the culture we live in and know how to ensure that within it, we build our house upon the rock. This is what John, then, has to tell us. It's the Word of God, 1 John chapter 2. We're going to read from verse 12 to the end of verse 17. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong. And the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Do not love the world or the things in the world. 
If anyone loves the world and, loves, and the love of the Father is not in him, for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life, that is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Let's pray. Lord, I do thank you for your word. Thank you for the way you gather us week after week, day after day, through your word, as your crowd, as your disciples, and you speak to us. Lord, would we pay attention then to what we hear today? And would we apply it? And would we be like the man who builds his house upon the rock? Lord, guide us in this, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Timothy George, a man who is the historian and theologian and the dean of Beeston Divinity College, he writes the following after visiting Thomas Jefferson's famous home, a home called Monticello. This is what he says. While touring his library, we were shown a copy of Thomas Jefferson's New Testament. The curator held it up to let us see how it was full of holes. Jefferson had gone through it with a penknife and cut out all of the references that offended him. All the verses about God's wrath, hell, judgment, and so forth. He then continues very insightfully. While no Bible-believing Christian would be so impudent as Jefferson by actually deleting a part of God's word, in reality, I believe we are all guilty of a similar offense when we deliberately ignore any portion of what God has revealed to us in Scripture. You know, I doubt that any of us this morning have actually gone through our Bibles with a penknife and taken part pieces out. I doubt that any of us would actually be as arrogant as that, as actually rubbing things out that we don't like. And yet, in truth, when we completely ignore a passage, it's just as bad. When we completely, we take these words and we just say, no, I'm not going to go with that. When we change it in any way or ignore it, it is as difficult as deleting it. And this morning, I believe we are encountering a passage that for so many people we can so easily, deliberately, or conveniently ignore. Namely, 1 John 2, verse 15, which says, Do not love the world or the things of the world. I believe it's all too easily to deliberately or conveniently ignore that verse. And where we can't ignore that verse or don't want to ignore that verse, instead, I think we so often just soften it instead. We take the corners off it. We alter the original intended meaning of the text, and ultimately then we empty the command of its authority and indeed that its application to us. We ignore it or soften it. But this morning, for the glory of God, I want us to resist that temptation and that tendency. I do not want us to ignore this passage. I do not want us to alter this passage. No, this morning, I want us to recognize afresh that this passage is God's authoritative word to us. God, in His grace, breathed this passage through the Apostle John, not just for the original intended audience, but for us as well. This is God-breathed because God is not just addressing us corporately, He's addressing you individually. He's communicating to you and His word is clear. Do not love the world or the things in this world. 
And so this morning, I, I want us to clearly and authoritatively sit under those words because they're just oh so important if we're truly going to be the man who builds his house upon the rock. Now, I must admit, as I've prepared for this message this week and as I've had time to think about it, actually, over the last few months, I've been at times concerned about the enduring effect of this message because this message, and particularly these verses, they are full on. And I'm aware you are unprepared for this moment. I've had months to think about this moment. You've had minutes to think about this moment. And it's happening in real time. And you think, oh my goodness, what happened to Sovereign Grace? Well, it's right here. I remember the first time I heard a message on this topic. It was by a man called C.J. Mahaney, the founder of our movement, Sovereign Grace Churches. And so much of what I'm talking about today, I stand on his shoulders. I learned it from him. And I remember the first time I heard him talking about it, and I was overwhelmed because, like you, I was unprepared. And I'm aware this morning you are unprepared. And I've been mindful at times and concerned at times that you could end up resembling a parakeet that I heard about some time ago parakeet named Chippy. This is Chippy's story. Chippy's owner decided to clean out his cage with a vacuum cleaner. She was halfway finished when the phone rang, so she turned around to answer it, and before she knew it, Chippy was gone. In a panic, she unsnapped the top of the vacuum cleaner and ripped open the bag. There was Chippy covered in a dark dirt and gasping for air. As a budgie lover, this is so offensive. <laughs> For those of you that know me, know I'm not a budgie lover. Our budgie died a few weeks ago. We buried him in an M&M's box. <laughs> the story continues. She carried him to the bathroom and rinsed him off under the sink. And then realizing that Chippy was cold and wet, she reached for the hairdryer. Chippy never knew what hit him. His owner was then asked just a few days later how he was recovering. Well, she said, Chippy doesn't sing much anymore. He just sits and stares. <laughs> I was concerned that the ongoing during effect of this church may be that post this message, it may be said of us, Sovereign Grace, I remember that church, they were an awesome church, but now, well, they don't sing much anymore. They just sit and stare. I was concerned at times that if this is misunderstood or mismanaged, that that could be the enduring effect of this message. But we're going to give it anyway. And we're going to discuss it anyway because, quite frankly, I care about you. I love you. And I don't do this because it's my job. I do this because one day I'm going to give an account to the Lord and I love Him and I love you. And this is an important verse. This message then is given with care. The truth is, this message is given with care primarily from the Lord. That's why this is here. And as John pens this letter, you need to understand his whole tone and heart behind the whole thing is one of care. See, John has written his gospel. Without doubt, his gospel is with evangelistic intent. But he writes this letter with pastoral intent. It's very different to his gospel. He's seeking to pastor us here. He's writing to the church that he has deep affection for, which he loves, which he has pastoral concern for. That's why I started reading in verses 12 through 14, because in verses 12 through 14, it's all about gracious affirmation. He's talking to them, listen to his words, dear children, fathers, 
young men. Terms of endearment. And he's helping them see, listen, you're saved by grace alone. God has forgiven you of all your sin. You have a relationship with him. I love you. I want to remind you of who you are. And in exactly that same tone, then he continues in verse 15 to 17 to tell them to not love the world. Why? Because it's an act of care to them. I love you, so you need to hear this. It's going to help you be like a man who built his house upon the rock. And so he proceeds in verse 15 through 17 with gracious exhortation. The heart of this whole command is one of care. And the value of it is one of eternal worth. Because it can change a life. And our lives often need to be changed. Three points then this morning. Number one, worldliness defined. Number two, worldliness discerned. And then number three, worldliness defeated. Let's start where John begins with worldliness defined. And look again at the first part of verse 15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. Now, initial reading of that verse, I think, can be confusing because it appears, at least on face value, to contradict other parts in Scripture, does it not? I mean, what about Genesis 1? God makes the world, He creates the world, and does what? He declares it good. So why are we not meant to love it? If He's declared it good, then why are we not meant to be loving it? That seems kind of weird. And John, the author of this text, has just said in his gospel, these words, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, so that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. How come if God loves the world, we're not meant to love the world? That doesn't make sense. It appears on face value that this command contradicts other parts of Scripture. And yet we must understand that in Scripture the word world has a variety of meanings. It doesn't mean the same thing every time. And so let me explain or begin by explaining what John is not talking about here. When he uses the word world, what he's not talking about here is the world God created. He's not talking about the people of the world or the structures that God created for the world, like family or government or schools or colleges. He's not talking about occupations of the world, like jobs or advancements in medical science or teaching. Likewise, he's not talking about God's love for the world. And likewise, he's not talking about respect for and appreciation of God's creation. No, we're meant to have all those things. But what John is referring to is this. The ways of fallen humanity hostile to God. That's what he means. Don't love that. Love the people. But don't love the ways. Don't love the ways of fallen humanity hostile to God. What does that mean? Well, it means the thoughts and values and attitudes and practices and behaviors of fallen humanity that are opposed to God and in defiance of God. That's what John is looking us in the eye, inspired by God himself, and says, do not love that. Don't love their behaviors. Don't love their values. Don't love their attitudes. That's not for you. See, make no mistake, my friends. We are called to love the people of the world. We are. We need to be in the world to win the world. Jesus himself came to the world to love the world, to save the world. We're called to love people. We're called to make disciples of all nations. Jesus was a friend of sinners, so must we be. 
We're called to be in the world. This is not an exhortation to become a monk here. We're called to be in the world, to love the world. But make no mistake, we are not called to love the ways of the world. And there's an important distinction. We can love the people without loving the ways. And we're commanded to do both in Scripture. Love the people, but do not love their ways. The thoughts, the values, the attitudes, the practices and behaviors of fallen humanity that are opposed to God and in defiance of God, we are not called to love that at all. Another way of saying it is, listen, we are in the world to love the world, but we are not of this world. We're in the world to win the world. We're called to go to them with the glorious gospel, but we are not of this world. That's why we're called in the Bible aliens and strangers and foreigners and sojourners. We're not of this world. We're called to be radically different. And in life, then, we are called to walk very differently from the world because the thoughts and the values and the attitudes and the practices and behaviors of the world are not meant to be our thoughts and values and attitudes and practices and behaviors. I heard a story some time ago from a man called Calvin Miller, an author, and he talks in this story about the moment when he first realized in his life just how different we're meant to be as Christians. And he talks about it by writing of the following unexpected relationship. And I think it's eye-opening. Listen. Some years ago, at a train station in Pennsylvania, I met a wonderful Amish man. A young man in a black hat and a black outfit. A young man unmarried, no beard around his chin yet. And we got to talking and became friends, and I left him a card. And within a week or two, when I got home, I got a letter from him, which began a three-year period of having an Amish pen pal. It was the best correspondence I've ever had. One day, I got a special letter. Sadie and I are getting married, and we'd like to come on our honeymoon and see you. Would that be okay? Wrote his friend Reuben. Sure, I wrote back. We'd love to have you come. So they came. They rode a bus. I'll never forget picking them up. They were in their black clothes, and that was unusual, unusual in Omaha, Nebraska. I took them to my house. My children looked at them like they were relics from the deep past. I took them to church, and the church looked at them that way as well. I found myself living with people who had never listened to a radio program or seen a TV program or gone to a movie. Suddenly, I was explaining things. My little girl came running through the room with a Dallas Cowboys sweatshirt on. And Reuben said, oh, I hear there are cowboys in the West. I said, well, these aren't cowboys. These cowboys play football. He couldn't understand that. I explained Fresca to him. A world of definitions unraveled all week long until Thursday night. My wife and I had season tickets to the playhouse. And we were going to see Camelot. So I asked Reuben and Sadie if they would like to see Camelot. And they said that they thought they would. I remembered Luther's dictum at that point about going against conscience, being neither safe nor right. I didn't want to spoil their conscience. And so I said, remember, Reuben, this is a play, and, and sometimes they do funny things in plays. He said, Calvin, I know your letters. You would never lead me into sin. I said, sit down into Reuben and let me tell you about the dirtiest parts of the play. I told him the dirtiest parts of the play. I explained that actors sometimes kiss each other on the mouth. Can you take that? He said he thought he could. I said, they're not married. He thought he could. I said, they wear leotards. 
He said, what's leotards? <laughs> he writes, I tried to explain leotards to an Amish person. It is very difficult to do this. Finally, after I explained it as best I could, Thursday night came and it was time to see Camelot. They came out, of course, in the only clothes they had. My daughter said, Dad, are they actually going to wear those clothes for the playhouse? I said, yeah. To which she said, well, can we go in after the lights go down? I said, no, honey. These are our friends. All the way there, I felt a tension between a man who wrote godly letters and what I was about to ask him to do. We saw Camelot. It was interesting. Everyone in the theater had seen Camelot at least 50 times, except Reuben and Sadie. So Reuben and Sadie watched Camelot, and everyone else watched Reuben and Sadie watch Camelot. <laughs> and on the way home, when you usually talk about the play, they were very quiet. I felt like I'd somehow disappointed them, or stole the heart out of their faith. When they got back to Pennsylvania, they wrote me a wonderful letter thanking me for everything, and especially that play. Camelot. Now he closes with his reflections on this couple, Reuben in particular. Of Reuben, he writes the following. I think he loves God with all his heart, but he is completely unintelligible in a modern culture. You know what I think about true believers in Jesus? I think you might as well put on your black hat and black suit now. For if we stand true to Jesus Christ in the world that is enfolding, then we too, I believe, shall look as out of place to our culture as Reuben and Sadie looked to me. My friends, we are not called to look out of place because of an identification with Amish theology or practice or isolation or clothing styles. But I do wonder, like Mr. Miller, that if we are honestly true to Jesus Christ in the present world that is unfolding, I too can't help but think that we are likely to look as out of place as Reuben and Sadie look to him. Why? Because we're not of the world. We're called to look radically different. We're called to be in the world, but we're not called to be of the world. We're called to be in a world with various thoughts and values and attitudes and practices and behaviors, but we're not called to embrace them. We're called to stick out like a sore thumb and look completely different. We're called to be in the world, but we're not called to be of it. We are meant to look radically, radically different from the world. And yet so often, if we're honest as Christians, we don't, do we? Why? Why don't we look so different to the world? Well, here's why I believe why. As your pastor, here's my assessment of why so often in Christianity we don't look any different. We don't look any different, I believe, because our greatest challenge right now in this country and our generation, I believe, is not persecution from the world, but seduction by the world. Our greatest challenge right now is not persecution from fellow Australians. It's being seduced by them to just thinking we're all the same and not even being perceptive of it. Few, if any of us in this room right now, are going to be martyred for our faith. Few, if any... I have the privilege of going to countries where that is a very realistic, very realistic reality for them. Some of my friends that I relate to around the world will almost definitely die for their faith. 
That's not our issue here at Sovereign Grace in Sydney. But each and every day of our lives, we are slowly but surely being seduced by the world. It's like a silent death that so often we are completely unaware of or unseeing or undiscerning towards. The greatest problem isn't being persecuted by the church, by the world. It's being seduced by the world. James Hunter author of a book called Evangelicalism and the Coming Generation, makes the following observation of the church. It's so insightful. He says, Clearly some norms have not changed. Evangelicalism still adhered to prohibitions against premarital, extramarital, and homosexual relations. But even here, that attitude towards those prohibitions has noticeably softened. You notice that? That statement was written in 1987. How much more has it softened since then? 1987, he is observing the church is changing. Even issues like premarital sex and extramarital sex and homosexual relations that are wrong before the Lord. The church is softening to those. It was written 30 years ago. How much more is the church at large softened to those things? Why is it softened? Well, it's not because it's being persecuted by the world. It's being seduced by the world. Just to embrace everything as if it's fine. Love is love. I don't see that in my Bible. But the world screams it, and so we start to embrace it. He then continues. In brief, the symbolic boundaries that previously defined moral propriety for conservative Protestantism have lost a measure of clarity. Many of the distinctions separating Christian conduct from worldly conduct have been challenged, if not altogether undermined. Even the words worldly and worldliness have within a generation lost their meaning. My friends, how true this is. How kind of the Lord then to position us once again with John so that we can discover their meaning once again. We're not called to sit under culture. We're called to sit under this word. And in this word, God tells us what the world is. He tells us what worldliness is. Worldliness is what Jesus Christ gave his life for. The values and practices and behaviors of the world, they're the very things that Jesus ultimately gave his life for. And that's why as Christians, we're called to be different. We're not called to celebrate the things of the world. No, we're called to distance ourselves from celebrating those things. And more importantly, we're called to guard ourselves from being seduced by the world. Because I'm reading, do not love the world or the things of the world. You know, if we're going to guard ourselves and be seduced by the world, we have to be able to identify it, don't we? We have to be able to see it for what it is. We have to be able to actually discern it in the culture and in our own lives. And that's then point two, worldliness discerned. See, identifying worldliness requires discernment, and some at this point will say, we just can't do it. It's too big a topic. It's just not possible, you know? And any attempt to try and identify worldliness, well, that's going to inevitably end up in legalism and result in legalism. We'll all end up looking like Reuben and Sadie, because we'll have to, because we're just going to make up a load of rules about what worldliness is. So let's not even try. John is helping us with that very thing here, because John, in verse 16, he provides us with three categories that are deliberately designed to help us identify and discern worldliness. 
And they should be of a measurable value for each and every Christian in the room. Look with me at verse 16. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. You know, I want you to notice something here. You need to be perceptive to it. You need to see it. It is wonderful pastoring. This is world-class pastoring. It is brilliant. John could have just given us, listen, do not love the world or the things of the world. So here is 83 things to avoid. Don't do this. Don't do that. Don't do that. He doesn't do any of that. He takes you to three things that all relate to your very own heart. Three things that resound with the enemy within. Three things that relate to where ultimate worldliness resides, namely in our hearts. You see, this is where worldliness ultimately begins and resides. We don't live in this world or this culture with innocent, passive hearts, uninfluenced by culture. No, we live in a world with active hearts and engaging hearts where so much that takes place out there becomes attractive. Our hearts are not some venerable old grandmother. Our hearts are a dirty salesman at the local, you know, the local carriage, garage. That's what it's like. That's what you're dealing with in your hearts. Our hearts are active in our culture. They are passionate in our culture. They are still sadly engaging with indwelling sin. And so John seeks to draw our attention not primarily to the culture. He seeks to draw our attention to within. Helping us see, you know, I don't know what you're dealing with when you're dealing with worldliness. You're dealing with yourself. You're dealing with stuff in here. And he gives us those three categories then. He says, number one, the desires of the flesh. What's that? Well, this is not a reference to the normal and legitimate desires of the body as created by God. No, this is a reference to the cravings of indwelling sin. If you want another way of putting it, this is a reference to the reality that all of our hearts are idol factories. He's pointing to the reality that your hearts, because of the nature of indwelling sin, you will constantly be fighting between the creator and the created. You'll want to worship Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, but then other things that he's created will start to dazzle you, and you'll want them, and you'll feel like you need them. Your hearts are idol factories. Tim Keller wonderfully says it this way in his book, Counterfeit Gods. He says, an idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, if only I have that, then I'll feel my life has meaning. And then I'll know I have value. And then I'll feel significant and secure. Idols are the things that rattle us most when they are threatened. It's so true. Our hearts are idol factories. We all are in a battle between exchanging the Creator for the Creator. So we take good things that are gifts from the Lord, but unchecked, our hearts start to be passionate about those things so much so that we think, if only I can run today, if only I can listen to this music today, if only I could buy this TV, if only I could get this car, then I'd be happy, I'd be passionate, my life would be good. We take something that's created and start to worship it. And all the time, our passion for the Creator diminishes can't pick both. It's one or the other. And John says, listen, that's what you're dealing with. And when you're dealing with your heart, first of all, we need to pay attention to the desires of the flesh. And we also need to pay attention, number two, to the desires of the eyes, he says there. You know, the desires of the eyes. Our eyes are precious gifts from God, aren't they? Wonderful gifts by the Lord. They're given us to by God as a gift, and one of the things we can do with them is we can see His work. It's one of the things I love about going on holidays. 
You go out into the world and you realize, oh my goodness, what you have created in the world and in the skies when you slow down to look at it is dramatic and incredible. Lord, the work that you have done is, is staggering in every way. God's given us eyes to be able to see those things and marvel at his wonders and who he is. But our eyes, they also have a tendency to covet and lust after things. And that marries with the desires of the flesh, and that's what gives us all sorts of problems. Now, I know that for many of us, we're going to be thinking about sexual sin there, the lust of the eyes, pornography, and so forth. And that, without doubt, is included in that statement. But that's not the only things our eyes lust for. Our eyes can lust for stuff, for success, for looks, for clothing, for abilities, for friendships, for purpose. Our eyes can be used to behold the glories of the God, or they can be used to look on at the world and think, I need that, I want that, I want that, if only I could have. That's where worldliness begins. It ain't out there, it's in here. We need to guard against the desires of the flesh. We need to guard against the desires of the eyes. We also need to guard, number three, about the pride of life. Now you wonder, what is that? How do I guard my heart from the pride of life? Well, the NIV says it well. This pride of life is otherwise translated the boasting in what one has and does. I prefer that. I think that makes it more clear. What is it that I'm fighting and guarding against? Well, the boasting of what I have and do And my friends, how relevant is that point here to us in Sydney, don't you think? We are a boastful culture by nature, aren't we? Now, I remember when I first arrived in Sydney, so many people, not just in the church, but outside the church, said, oh, so what school did you go to? And you're like, uh, Spalding County Primary School? Uh, I'm not quite sure what the purpose is. And they're like, yeah, yeah, but secondary school. Um, Spalding Royal Free Grammar School? Um." And what they were getting at is, oh, so it wasn't Knox, it wasn't Parker, it wasn't Loretto. It, it wasn't sure. It, no, what, what are those? I'd never heard of any of them. We tend to score ourselves in this culture on where you went to school, what suburb you live in, what grades you achieve, what position you have in your workplace, where you're going next, what car you drive, what holidays you've just been on. Have you seen the world? Oh, you've never got out. Oh, you poor thing. See, I'm not saying then that we should never share things that are going on in our lives. That's not what I'm saying. But we do have to guard our hearts wondering, why am I sharing that? Why am I saying these different things? Is it just to bring glory to the Lord or is it to boast? So that I'll feel your approval and affection and your, wow, you went there? Don't tell me you went to Knox. I'll just go, really, where's that? John is trying to draw our attention to the reality that worldliness isn't primarily out there. It's in here. It's driven from the enemy within It's the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life. And when we realize that, that's when we can go after it and defeat it. That's when we can really ensure that we don't love it. And so that's point three, finally, worldliness defeated. How do we ensure that we not love the world or the things in the world? How do we do that? How do we defeat this? How do we be different as Christians? Well, there's three ways that are all in the text. It's not complicated. You're just going to look, pay attention to what you're listening to, and you'll see it is right there. So how do we do it? Number one, we need to know our battle and own it. We need to know that our battle is with the enemy within and own that. Verse 16 helps us know the battle. What we are battling is the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life. They're not from the Father, they're from the world. They're part of the old self. That's what we need to battle with in our hearts. But listen, 
knowing that is not enough. We need to own it as well. Knowledge alone is never enough, okay? You can be the smartest person in the world and stupid. Knowledge is not enough. Knowledge is always the prelude to action. Knowledge always results in something for it to be true wisdom and true discernment. That's why Jesus says, you call me Lord, Lord, but don't do anything. Eh? What's the point there? We need to call him Lord, Lord, and pay attention and then apply it, knowing that as I apply it, I'll be like the man who builds his house upon the rock. So we need to know our battle and own it. And here's three questions then that I designed this week for you that I think may be able to help us all discern where the worldliness is in my life. Write them down. I'll post them to you in the week too. Number one, is there anything that you're presently watching or listening to or participating in that in reality is seducing you into the world? Is there anything you're presently watching or listening to or participating in that in reality is seducing you into the world? Think about that because the world deceives us. You know, I remember a number of years ago, my pr- favorite film by a long way, Pretty Woman. Loved it. Thought it was a great movie. Thought it was really good. It's this story of this girl who um, is impoverished and she falls in love with a really rich man. And by the end, you're like, this is sweet. I hope they get together. And I just loved it. And at the end, they do get together and you think, this is just great. This is like reconciliation. Loved it. I watched it so many times. And then I heard a message on worldliness and I started to think through, what is it that I'm watching? And I realized, okay, it's a pretty woman. Well, she's a prostitute. I say, she's selling her body. So the very thing she's doing each and every day of our life is the very thing that Jesus had to die for. And at the end, I shouldn't be rejoicing that they get together. I should be grieving that they haven't repented of their sin and put their faith in Jesus. Kind of put a different perspective on things. You know, when you start to think about what you're watching on TV and being entertained by, we can so easily think that, well, half a poison pill won't kill me. It won't kill you, but it will greatly damage you. You won't even be perceptive anymore to what is being seduced by the world at all. You'll start to embrace things and celebrate things that once upon a time you would have never, never envisaged celebrating. Think through what is it that I'm watching and listening to and participating in. Is that helping me love Jesus? Or in reality, is that possibly me being seduced by the world? We should be watching things on TV and be grossly shocked by them. Sadly, so often I don't think we are because we're being seduced. Number two, is there anything in the world that you're presently attracted to or pursuing, thinking that this might give you meaning or significance or value or security? Is there anything in the world that you are presently attracted to or pursuing, thinking that this might give you meaning or significance or value or security? My friends, it won't. It lies to you. We need to know our battle and own it. And then number three, in all honesty, am I actively and purposely fleeing the world or am I flirting with the world? In all honesty, you need to be honest with yourself, am I actively and passionately seeking to not love the world or am I flirting with it? Blase as if it's no big deal. 
not even engaging my mind. Possibly being stained by the world all the time, but doing it like a silent killer and not even realizing. My friends, I want to encourage you, take some time this week to attend your own soul with those questions. And if you discover in your heart in that time that there is the presence of worldliness, I want to encourage you, this is already then a wonderful evidence of grace in your life. It's already a wonderful moment to realize God is at work in your life. He's bringing your attention to worldliness because he wants you to change for your good and his glory. And if you discern the presence of worldliness in your life, encourage others to get involved with you. Share these realities with other people. And then attend the divine changing room. The divine changing room of Ephesians chapter 4. We put off the old self, we be renewed in our mind, and we put on the new self. That's how people change. That's the God-given mechanism for change, the divine changing room. My friends, we need to know our battle and own it. Number two, we need to know the lie and reject it. We need to know it. We need to discern it. We need to reject it. Verse 17a, and the world is passing away along with its desires. The world is passing away along with its desires. Here's the world. Here's the lie. The lie, my friends, is the world isn't passing away at all. It is sweet. And it will give you the answer to everything you want. Christianity in the church is like a black and white postcard. The world, it is a HDTV. This is where it's at, baby. Let's go. Let's get it on. You don't want to be in there. I don't know even what they're on about. The world is where it's happening. We need to realize that is not true. As Francis Schaeffer once said, in the world, you are always standing in quicksand. I think that's brilliant. In the world, it seeks to dazzle, but all the time, we're standing in quicksand. We don't realize it. The world is decaying. It is falling away. Your life will be taken from you quicker than you think. Don't waste it, and don't believe the lie of the world and the enemy. This world is passing away along with its desires. The world promises so much, but it's when you read the subtext that you realize it will take you further than you wanted to go, keep you longer than you wanted to stay, cost you more than you wanted to pay. And this world, whenever you engage with it, what you don't realize is it always comes with nausea and vomiting. We need to know it. We need to heed the words of Jesus and stand on this truth, believing it and rejecting the lie. And then number three, verse 17b, we need to know our eternal home and live in light of it. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. My friends, that there is a reference to heaven. And the NIV, it doesn't say abides, it says lives. But whoever does the will of God lives forever. John is seeking to help us see, listen, don't love the world because the world is ultimately passing away. It will do you harm. But your home is in heaven and that ain't decaying at all. And if you abide in Christ, that's your heavenly home. Don't think about this world. Give yourself to the world to come. Think about the world to come. Do the will of God and think about that. Don't engage with the rat race here. Engage with the glories of heavens, realizing you are made for a person and a place. That person is Jesus, and that place is heaven. That's your home. Think about your home. My friends, for me in my life, that's why I deliberately take times to stare. And it looks a bit odd. 
But I want to just stare and think and enjoy the reality that this is not my home. I actively take time to think, this is not my home. This is not my home. And then I start thinking about heaven and how much I'm looking forward to it. How much I'm looking forward to seeing some old friends and family. How much I'm looking forward to seeing the glories of all that the Lord has done. How much I'm looking forward to seeing Jesus. And that that's what I'm running for. When we do that, it gives us perspective on the world that we simply couldn't see before. And it's that that John is encouraging us to hear, to think on about the world. Randy Alcorn then, he writes wonderful books on heaven. And just to close, I want to read a portion of this one from Edge of Eternity, which gives us a taste of just what it might be like when we see Jesus. The army began to sing, perhaps hundreds of thousands, perhaps a million. I added my voice to theirs and sang the unchained praises of the king. Only for a moment did I hear my own voice, amazed to detect the increased intensity of the whole. One voice, even mine, made a measurable difference. But from then on, I was lost in the choir, hardly hearing my voice and not needing to. As we sang to the gathered throngs of heaven, the sheer power of their voices, our voices, nearly bowled me over. And suddenly the multitudes before us sang back to us, and our voices were drowned out by theirs. We who a moment earlier seemed to be the largest choir ever assembled, now proved to be only the small worship ensemble that led the full choir of untold millions now lost to themselves. We sang together in full voice. To him who made the galaxies, who became the lamb, who stretched out on the tree, who crossed the chasm, who returned the lion, forever be praised. The song's harmonies reached out and grabbed my body and my soul. I became the music's willing captive. The galaxies sang with us the royal song. It echoed off a trillion planets and reverberated in a quadrillion places in every nook and cranny of the universe. It blotted out all lesser lights and brought a startling clarity to the way things really were. Our voices broke into 32 distinct parts, and instinctively, I knew which of them I was made to sing. We sing for the joy of the work of your hands. We stand in awe of you. It felt indescribably wonderful to be lost in something so much greater than myself. There was no audience, I thought, for a moment. For audience and orchestra and choir, well, they all blended into one great symphony. One grand assembly of rhapsodic melodies and powerful sustaining harmonies. No, wait. There was an audience. An audience so vast and all-encompassing that for a moment, I'd been no more aware of it than the fishes of water. I looked at the great throne and upon it sat the king. The audience of one. The smile of his approval swept through the choir like fire across dry wheat fields. When we completed our song, the one on the throne stood and raised his great arms and clapped his scarred hands together in thunderous applause, shaking ground and sky, jarring every corner of the cosmos. His applause went on and on and on, unstopping and unstoppable. And in that moment, I knew with unwavering clarity that the king's approval was all that mattered and ever would. My friends, the king's approval is all that matters. On that last day, it is only his approval that will matter. And hearing that, well done, it's the only thing that will matter for all eternity. So by God's grace then, would it be all that matters today as well? 
Would we not be a people to just say, Lord, Lord, Master, Master, I bow to you. And then fail to listen to a word he says and go off and just do our thing. That's like a man who's building his house upon the sand and as soon as the storm of the world comes, you're gone. But would we say, Lord, Lord, Master, Master, and then heed his words, discern these words, and apply them. Would that be our story? And to God go the glory. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, I do thank you for your word. I thank you for its clarity, its sufficiency, its care towards us. Lord, as we gather around this word and we understand the importance of not loving the world, Lord, we discuss here a task that for us isn't just hard, it is impossible. But with you, all things are possible. And so, Lord, even now as we close in song, Lord, we do so to come to you for help. Would you help us, Lord? Would you give us the grace in our lives to discern what you're telling us? Would you provoke the Spirit in our hearts to draw attention to areas in need of change? Lord, we want to live well for you. Help us then to not love the world or the things of the world. And with the fruit then in our lives, be that you are glorified as we build our house upon the rock. In Jesus' name, amen.